You're trying to blow the roof off with that last song. I like it. I like it. I want to begin this morning uh, with a, a quote from Oswald Chambers. Uh, Oswald Chambers has a famous devotion I'm sure most of you have heard of, My Utmost for His Highest. Uh, in regards to the gifts, Oswald Chambers writes this in his devotion. We have the idea that we can dedicate our gifts to God. However, you cannot dedicate what is not yours. There is actually only one thing you can dedicate to God, and that is your right to yourself. If you will give God your right to yourself, he will make a holy experiment out of you. And his experiments always succeed. I love that. The one true mark of a saint of God is the inner creativity that flows from being totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Those words from Oswald Chambers basically sums up the point of my message this morning. And so if we weren't a preacher, we could go home. Or if I wasn't a preacher, we could go home right now. But I'm a preacher, so i got to preach. So we're going to be here a little bit while longer. But what Oswald Chambers is saying in those verses is this, that we do not give the gifts of the Spirit that we have to God as though we're giving a portion of what belongs to us back to Him. Because the gifts, like everything else that we have in our lives, are given to us from God. And so the only thing that we can do, the only proper thing we can do, is give all of ourselves to God. We can give Him the entirety of our lives. And this is the epitome of what it means to be a follower of Christ. To be a follower of Jesus is a full surrender of self to God, to the one who created us. It is a full turning back to Him to whom we owe absolutely everything that we have have, and that happens only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there is absolutely no form of true Christianity that allows for a portion of our surrender. The Bible doesn't understand that kind of Christianity. The Bible doesn't know how do we just give a portion. It's all or it's nothing. We cannot go, God, here's a portion of my talents. Here's a portion of my time. Here's a portion of my treasure. We surrender all things to God, all that we are, or we have not surrendered. But when we do surrender... God then graciously employs us in the work of His kingdom, making use of our lives for eternal purposes, which includes the use of the gifts that He has bestowed upon each one of us. Everything begins with surrender in the Christian life, surrender of ourselves. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, at least partially. You see, last week we spent some time unpacking 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 where Paul says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we talked about what Paul means by each in that verse. We confirmed that each refers to every person who declares Jesus is Lord and whose entire lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit, reflect the truth of that declaration. Now, I'm not talking in perfection, but I am talking in surrender. You see, there is a difference between fully surrendering to Jesus and walking in perfection. 
or we will not walk in perfection until we go into eternity and be with Him. But we can walk in full surrender. And part of that means that there will be times as sinful fallen people that we will fall short and we will have to come before the Lord and ask forgiveness. And so imperfection does not mean that we aren't fully surrendered. We will be fully surrendered and can be and still fall short at times until we go to be with the Lord. It is men and women who are surrendered to Christ, who follow Jesus as Lord, who receive the gifts of His Spirit. And so this week, I want to tease out that idea of surrender a little bit more by walking through Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 5 specifically to understand one of the most important aspects of what it means to be surrendered. And then at the end, I'm going to just cover six more spiritual gifts, kind of like what we did last week, where I'm just going to list them quickly and explain them briefly. And I want to just make a note as we jump in this morning. Some of you may have noticed as I was going through the spiritual gifts last week that I got to prophecy and I completely skipped over it. And I got to tongues and I skipped over it. And you're going to notice that the same thing is going to happen this week. And that's because Paul spends an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, on prophecy and tongues. And so I thought it's pretty wise for me to probably spend uh, an entire sermon on prophecy and tongues. So we will talk about prophecy and tongues in their entirety next week. And so I haven't forgotten. If you're like, where are they? We'll talk about them next week. But this week, we're going to be in Romans 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans 12. We're in verse 1. And as we begin, I want to give you some context behind the verses in Romans 12. Verse 1 and 2 of Romans 12 are probably uh, two of the most well-known and quoted verses in Scripture. They are used in a very broad number of contexts, and they legitimately have a broad amount of applications. Uh, Just to give you an example, John Piper, who, if you know, he's my favorite pastor, he's my favorite preacher, he has preached 17 sermons covering just Romans 12, 1 and 2. So this is my first one, so i got lots of space. i got lots of space to cover these verses. But Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, they often get quoted as standalone verses. But as you heard when we read all the way through to verse 8, uh, these verses are immediately followed by Paul talking about our responsibility in the body of Christ, and specifically, the use of our spiritual gifts. And a lot of Christians don't actually realize that, because we just quote verse 1 and 2. But Paul says, there's this, and then he jumps right into spiritual gifts and our responsibility in the body of Christ. So it's important to understand that Paul wrote these famous verses to followers of Jesus and immediately followed them with that responsibility. So in a grander context, verse 1 and 2 are the gateway to a number of exhortations to what it means to live rightly in Christ that Paul outlines in chapter 12, but he begins here. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. You know, Paul has this practice in his writings of sharing doctrine. And then when he's done sharing doctrine, he follows it up with an ethical exhortation or an encouragement to those who are reading what he has written. And so Paul's uh, approach is often here's doctrine, here's what you need to know, and now here's how you live in light of what I just talked about. 
And it's really important that Paul connects those two. And, and one of the things that we often get wrong in Christianity is we separate doctrine from living. And when you start to separate doctrine from living, it's dangerous because then it just becomes about head knowledge. And that's where arguments, and that's where fights often happen in Christian circles. No, doctrine is meant to inform how we live. We don't separate the two. One commentator says, doctrine is not taught simply for knowledge. It is taught to be translated to practice. And this is what Romans 12 is. It's the beginning of Paul's exhortation to the church of Rome on how Christians should live. He spent literally chapter 1 to 11 explaining doctrine, explaining the things of the faith. And then chapter 12 is where he switches. He goes, okay, here's what you need to do. Now that I've told you all this, here's how you live. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. Romans 12 verse 1 Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so we can see the, the transition that Paul is making there very clearly from doctrine to exhortation with that word, therefore. Right? We always talk about whenever therefore is, is in the text, it means what follows flows from what came before it. And so the flow of Paul's thought in verse 1 is this. He says, I appeal to you, I urge you, I exhort you, I encourage you based on the mercies of God, based on what I have told you previously, what God has done for you to respond to that mercy that he has shown you by offering your body as a living sacrifice, as something that is holy and acceptable to God. Because to do so is to truly worship God. That's Paul's train of thought there. He's saying to give yourself to God, to fully surrender, is the only thing that makes sense when you understand the mercies God has shown you. That's what Paul's getting at. But let's look at some of the aspects of this, because there's a lot to unpack in verse 1. Paul says, by the mercies of God... Basically, what Paul is getting at there is, if you are in Christ, God has shown you immeasurable mercy. If you know the Lord Jesus, if He is King of your life, you have been shown immeasurable mercy by God. Paul says in Romans 11 verse 30 that at one time you were disobedient to God, but have now received mercy from God. Right? The mercy of God, Paul's saying, is our motivation. What He has shown us should be our motivation to present our bodies back to Him as a living sacrifice. But what is Paul mean by a living sacrifice? Well, the new covenant no longer requires the giving of another person or another thing's life, right? The old covenant would require the animal sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. That was no longer required in the new covenant because Jesus Christ died on the cross once for all. So we no longer sacrifice animals. But what the new covenant does require is not the sacrifice of an animal, but the laying down of our own lives, the giving of ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5. He says, you 
yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So a, a living sacrifice is how we live before the Lord. It is the things like what we were just doing, his praise on our lips, the acknowledgement of who he is. It is not neglecting to do good and to share what you have. Now, this is not about um, just a, a responsibility that we have, right? It can't just be we have this responsibility to do good and to, to, to um, acknowledge God. It has to come from this heart of, I want to, I desire to. I want to lay down everything that I have, not just because I'm told to, but because I have received much mercy. And out of that mercy, I want to give of myself. That's the Christian motivation for good works. Right? They don't save us. They're a response to what has happened. And they reflect a heart that goes, God, you are infinitely worthy of me to give you my all. Because you didn't hold anything back from me, including your son. And when I was guilty, and when I deserved hell, he said, no, no, I'm going to send my son to take that punishment upon his shoulders so that you can walk in freedom. You know, Paul, earlier in Romans, he, he warns that uh, instead of giving our lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord, we can actually do the opposite as well. We can offer our lives as a sacrifice to sin. He says in Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So be a living sacrifice to the Lord. And I can't stress enough the requirement of that is that we die to ourselves, is that we willingly lay down our lives that we willingly every day pick up our cross and follow Jesus. It is not a one-time thing. It is an everyday commitment that I'm going to follow the Lord, that I'm going to lay down my desires, my wants for His desires and His wants for my life because ultimately they're greater. They may be harder at times, but they're greater. Paul says this is your spiritual worship to do this. You know, I love other English translations uh, with this word spiritual worship. Other English translations translate it proper worship. Like, this is proper worship. This is reasonable worship, some translations say. Logical service. And one even says this is true worship. It is, it's, it's that idea of what else can I do? What else can I do but offer my life wholly to the one who gives me everything? And when we have tasted and when we have seen the mercies of God, that's our heart posture. Lord, what, what else is there? 
There's nothing else but to give myself entirely to you. You know, the same predicament, maybe you want to call it, the same predicament faced the disciples when they received a really tough teaching from Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 6 was teaching the crowds, and he was teaching about the fact that he was the bread of life. He tells the, the crowds that the Jews must eat the bread of life so that they would live, and that he would give his flesh for life. And he says in John 6, 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And the response of the crowd was like, this guy's crazy. He's talking about cannibalism. What's happening here? What does it mean we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And Obviously, it was an illustration, but Jesus said it in a way that was difficult. And what happened? They all left. He cleared the room. It's a great way to get rid of people if you want to. And who remained but the 12 disciples, the ones who had walked with him closely, the ones who knew him the best. And Jesus says to them in verse 66 to 68, do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom do we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so they, it's a very similar principle to what I'm talking about. They, they were acknowledging, yeah, that's a tough teaching. I don't like the sound of that. I don't really understand it. But where else do I go? I've tasted and I've seen. I've got nowhere to turn. And that's what it is when you experience the mercies of God. There will be those difficult things in your life that God will command you to do. And you're like, hmm, I don't know. But where else can I go but fully surrender myself because I have experienced your immense mercy of my life? And so I will say yes in faith. And I will take steps in faith. And I will sacrifice in faith because you are worthy. And so we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to Him. And what I can guarantee you is that what follows next in chapter or in verse 2 is that the one who has offered his life or the woman who has offered her life as a sacrifice to God will have the distinguishing characteristic of not being conformed to the world that's what will follow verse 2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed. Paul's saying there, don't be like the men and the women in the world who don't know the mercies of God, who don't know what you know. They are living the way that they live because they don't know any better, but you do. And so don't be conformed to that. 
When Paul says conformed, he means don't copy their behavior. Don't copy the customs of the world. Don't try to imitate the things of the world. Don't try to be fashioned after the things of the world. And don't be influenced by the things of the world. Paul's saying, no, that should not mark you if you are a follower of Jesus surrendered to God. Instead, what should mark you is not being conformed, but being transformed. And to understand the dramatic nature of what transformation means there, what Paul's getting at, it's good to look at where else this word is used. You know where else this word is used? It's translated transfigured in Matthew 17, when Jesus goes up on the mountain. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That is a dramatic transformation. That's what Paul has in mind for us. It's used in one other place in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When Paul says, we with unveiled face there, he's referring back to Exodus 34, when Moses would go and meet with the Lord. See, Moses would wear a veil on his face when he was around the people of Israel. But then when he went before the Lord to meet with him, he would take that veil off. And it signified the confidence that he had in coming before the Lord as his servant. And the same symbolism is seen in the tearing of the veil that occurred when Jesus died. Right? We read that the, the veil that covered the most holy place in the temple was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died. And that signified that men now had access to God directly, that they could go into that most holy place and behold the Lord through the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul's taking that imagery and applying it to followers of Jesus. He's saying we have access through Jesus. We have access to come before for the Lord with confidence, the way that Moses did. And we have this intimate relationship with God as our Father, and we have this privilege of beholding the glory of the Lord. Like, do we take advantage of that privilege? Do we understand what that means? It's beautiful. And, and he says that as we behold Him, as we look to the Lord, as we look upon His beauty, we are renewed one degree at a time into the image of Jesus, which is accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it happens day by day as we behold the Lord, as every morning we get up and we come before Him and we spend time with Him, and we behold Him. We're made more and more into the image of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Colossians 3.10, And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image 
of its creator. Colossians 3.10 points to this ongoing, repetitive nature of the renewal that happens. Because Paul says, we have put on the new self. In Christ, we are new creations. Right? The old has passed away, but there's that reality of like, we're coming out of the world. Right? Like I came to faith when I was 24, and I came out of the world, and there was a lot of things that lingered that had to just kind of fall away over time. It didn't happen like that, even though I had a new self. The old man remains, Paul says. And it's day by day and beholding the Lord's glory and seeing His beauty that those things start to fall away. Until the ultimate goal that Paul says in Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And it's through that renewal that happens day by day that Paul says we'll be able to test. We will be able to discern what is the will of God. What does He command of us? What is good? What is acceptable? What is perfect? And so, are you beholding the Lord? And it's, it's, it's not difficult, but it can be hard, like everything in our faith, to behold the Lord. Are you in His Word? Are you gathered with His people? Are you under the teaching of His Word? Are you worshiping Him? Are you following His commandments? Are you seeking forgiveness when you fall short? These are all ways that we behold the Lord. When we come before Him and seek forgiveness, we recognize You are merciful. You have forgiven, and You continue to forgive. We learn more and more about Him as we spend time with Him. And what happens, and what Paul's getting at, is that a proper attitude towards God that grows over time as you are renewed in your mind, that proper attitude that grows in your mind will lead to proper attitude towards others. That's what he's getting at as we continue on here, as we go into verse 3. After saying those things, Paul then turns his attention to Jesus' church to communicate what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect for a believer relating to the body of Christ. He says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So we've talked a lot about this members of one body over the last several weeks. But what we see specifically here is what happens when a mind is renewed and how that relates to Jesus' church. And Paul lists a few things there. Someone who is surrendered to the Lord, who has a renewed mind, will not think better of themselves than they ought. They will have a humility 
towards others. You know, one of the sad things about followers of Christ who refuse to gather with brothers and sisters is it's ultimately just a lack of humility. It's ultimately just pride to think that you can walk out this life without the support of brothers and sisters in Christ, without how God made His body to function, is prideful. He commands us to gather for the good of ourselves and for the good of others. And so we will not think of ourselves as better than we ought when we have a renewed mind. We will walk with sober judgment, with wisdom. We will recognize that we have a role as a member of Jesus' body. And we will understand that we have all been given gifts that we must use for the sake of Jesus' body. Having a renewed mind will lead us to understanding the role that we have in Jesus' church. And a dedicated believer, someone who is surrendered to the Lord, they will work to discover their place in the body of Christ. And they will be motivated by the mercies of God to do that for the sake of what we've been talking about all throughout this series, for the sake of the building up of the whole body. And so as I did last week, I want to end with some of the ways that that happens, with some of the gifts. And Sandy read a few of the ones that we're going to cover this morning that are left. The first one is the gift of service or the gift of helps. These are men or women who serve or help for the building up of the body of Christ. The word that's used there is diaconia, which means to wait tables. It's fitting. These are men and women who have this gifting to meet many needs in the church. These are men and women who want to serve in order to free up others so that they can use the giftings that God has bestowed upon them. These are men and women that often do not want any recognition. They don't want position. They don't want spotlight. They, they tend to serve in the background. You, you probably won't even know they're there half the time. And they are content with knowing that their help or their service is a blessing to the entire body. That's the gift of service. Then there's the gift of administration. You want to know what my worst gift is? Administration. You know, it's interesting, though, as I was looking into it, I always think administration is like paperwork and stuff like that, you know, and, and, and there's an element to that. But the word in the Greek that means administration is actually this word that means to steer and to govern. So it's interesting. So those with a gift of administration have a big hand in helping to guide the church to a destination. These are the people who are excellent at organizing, who are excellent at directing, who are excellent at implementing plans. And it's a gift that's actually strongly related to leadership, but instead of being people-oriented, it's task-oriented, it's details-oriented, it's organizationally-oriented. 
Right? So as someone who has the gift of leadership, I need someone with the gift of administration because I would be like, hey, we're going to do this. Don't ask me how. That's what the administrator's for. Okay, well, here's all the things you're going to need, and this, this is how it needs to come together. And I'm like, oh, it's so boring. But thank the Lord for those people, or else you wouldn't get anywhere. <laughs> Gift of exhortation. Gifts of encouragement. These are the people that you just want to be around all the time. When you leave their presence, you're like, man, I just feel so good about myself. Because they just have this incredible gift from the Spirit to encourage and to strengthen, especially if you're wavering and you're struggling through something. You go and meet with this person and you just walk out and you're like, oh, yeah, I got the armor of God on. I'm ready to go. Right? Just this renewed spirit. Now, the, the beautiful thing about these people that have this gift is they can uplift and they can motivate and they can challenge and they rebuke at the same time. And it's one of those things where you walk out of it and you're like, man, I just got kicked in the butt and it feels great. Like, that's the gift of exhortation. They just totally called me out on my sin and it was awesome. Right? Someone without that gift would be like, didn't like that. (laughs) Then there's the gift of giving, which in the ESV is translated contribution. Uh, And it comes from this Greek word that means to make an impact, um, to give. And so this is the gift of generosity. These are the people that just see a need and want to give to it. Uh, It's often financial. It's often material. Uh, they They encourage the church by providing through physical means. So these are, these are the people where when they, they see a need, they're just like, oh, I want to give. I want to give to that. Let me give this. Right? They're just constantly looking for places to, to help out. Leadership. The gift of leadership it means to assist. It means to protect. It means to care for. It's very similar to the office of pastor and shepherd. You need to have some leadership uh, in pastoring and shepherding is important because these are the people who care for other people. They're the ones that are people-oriented rather than being task-oriented like the administrators. So these are people who lead intentionally. These people tend to have vision for where an organization is going, less concerned with the details of how you're going to get there, but definitely know where you're going, right? And, and these people tend to be entrepreneurial. They're willing to just try new things. And last is the gift of mercy. The Greek word is elio. And I love what it means. It means to be patient. It means to be compassionate towards suffering. We've been doing, uh, we've been doing a spiritual gift test as a church. Just a heads up, church, we may be a little bit low on mercy. <laughs> Corporately, I was like, Yikes. <laughs> But these are the people who, who have concern for other people spiritually, who have concern for other people physically. These are the people that, that see a need and they just want to come alongside that person who is hurting or who is struggling. And they will walk out that healing process all the way until God finally lifts that burden off of that person. And so very similar to the gift of exhortation in a way, but focused on those who are hurting, who are struggling. So these are 
just a few more of the gifts that the Lord has given His church. And, and I've been highlighting them the last couple of weeks because we've been talking about them and, and doing spiritual gifts tests as a church so we can understand how has God gifted me? Right? How does God want me to impact the body of Christ that He has made me a part of? How do I serve and glorify His name and help those around me with what He has given me? And I pray that each one of us would understand, as I said at the beginning, that we don't just give our gifts to God, but it's about giving all of ourselves, fully surrendering, going, Lord, use me for the glory of your name, use me for the good of your church, and he will go ahead and use those gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how you have created your body and how you have made it to work. Father, I thank you first and foremost for Jesus who through his sacrifice you have created a family for yourself. That you have called us unto you through faith in Jesus. That you have made a way that you tore that veil so that we could come before you and behold you in glory. Father, I pray for each one of us here that, that we wouldn't try to live a Christianity that involves partial surrender. That we wouldn't try to say to you, Lord, I'll give you this, but not that. You can have this part of my life, but not that part of my life. Your word does not recognize that kind of faith. May we be people who imperfectly but willingly come before you and say, Lord, all that I am is yours. All that I have is yours. How do you want me to use it? For the furthering of your kingdom and for the glory of your name. Father, I thank you for how you have knitted each person together and I thank you for the gifts that you have given each one. It is a reminder of how much we need one another. And so, Father, may we be an encouragement to each other. Father, may we celebrate the gifts that each one has and know that we are not all going to serve in the same way, but we are all serving with the same purpose, same direction, same focus, and that is to see men and women who come to Christ, men and women who are built up in Christ, and the glory of our Father celebrated above all else. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, that you are abundantly worthy of praise. May we respond to you out of the mercies that you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.